thing that I find that's really cool about successful bariatric surgery, and again, why I think it has, I know there's controversy in the lifestyle medicine world. Oh, it's very, very invasive. It's not really necessary. Well, I don't know about that. I think that there are people who need it. You know, um, maybe not most people, but there definitely are people. The thing that's great about it is that person, all of a sudden, number one, that old narrative about themselves, like the, almost like the victim type of narrative where, where I can't do it. The world's done this to me. I, I feel horrible. I deserve it. Like that's the worst of all. I, you see that all the time. I deserve this. All of a sudden, the narrative shattered. There's a before and an after. And now this person is like, no, I'm going to go get them. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Welcome. My guest today is someone who has helped establish one of the premier lifestyle medicine clinics in Canada. Joining me is Dr. Jesse Pawarchuk, co-founder and medical director of Aroga Lifestyle Medicine in Victoria, BC. Dr. Pawarczak is one of the physicians here in Canada who I personally really look up to. He's truly changing healthcare, and after this conversation, you'll understand why. Dr. Pawarczak co-founded Aroga in 2017 after a long journey culminating in realizing the immense power of lifestyle change as medicine. He attended medical school at the University of Alberta and went on to complete his general internal medicine residency and fellowship. Today, he's also the medical director of the Island Health Bariatric Clinic, allowing him to be involved in the full spectrum of obesity care, from lifestyle to medication to surgery. In addition to his board certification in Canada, he is double board certified by the American Board of Obesity Medicine and the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. In our conversation, we start off with discussing what sets the Aroga Lifestyle Medicine Clinic apart and how personal empowerment is the key to behavior change. Then we really dive into obesity medicine, including the specifics of bariatric surgery, why lifestyle change post-operation is so important, why type of food matters more than calories, the role of hormones and medication in weight loss, and of course, so much more. I truly hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Cass. It's, uh, it's exciting to be here. Yeah. So, I have lots I want to ask you today, but I would love to start with a bit of your own personal story. Um, you're a general internal medicine physician, and I was wondering if you could first explain what this specialty is for those that don't know, and then maybe describe how you discovered lifestyle medicine. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting journey. So, um, a general internal medicine specialty uh, in Canada is a bit different than what one might think of it in the United States or uh, elsewhere. We're much more like British uh, consultant internists. So it's a consulting specialty um, uh, two years after the core three-year internal medicine uh, for a total of five-year residency. I did my residency and fellowship in Edmonton, actually, which is uh, uh, interesting because that's where you're based at. Um, I met my wife there, and uh, although I had an offer from Mayo Clinic, I turned it down because I didn't want to do the long-distance thing. Um, so. Uh, uh, basically, internal medicine, um, uh, we're diagnosticians, uh, but we're also jacks of all trades, um, not quite as as, as uh, broad as family practices, of course. Uh, you know, we don't deliver babies, but we certainly can be in the labor and delivery unit um, at times uh, with uh, all the things internal medicine-wise that can go wrong. Um, and so uh, one of the things that attracted me to internal medicine, and actually I, I made my decision on the match day itself. I had applied to multiple different specialties. I got accepted into all of them, and th these were 
the days when you had uh, term sheets. It was like uh, it was like free agent day in hockey, and uh, you would sign one of them and you'd fax it back, and that's where you'd go. Um, and so, uh, so I, I actually uh, was on the fence between three different specialties. Um, you know, one of which I'd done research in during my my first three years. That was rheumatology. Um, one of which I'd become very very interested in, which was occupational medicine, um, and uh, and internal medicine, of course, was the third one, which I'd become increasingly interested in over my senior year. And um, actually, I, I got an unsolicited offer from cardiology as well. So it was, uh, you know, and, and and one of my buddies, best buddies did cardiology. And so there's all this pressure. Hey, you know, come on, let's do this. You know, this will be great. Um, but um, at the end of the day, I chose general internal medicine because it offered me the most flexibility in practice. And I am sure glad I did because it's what left the door open to lifestyle medicine in a great big way. Not that you can't do it in other fields. But I believe that general internal medicine is ideal uh, for approaching this in Canada anyways. So I finished my residency um, and uh, I uh, took a job uh, in Victoria, which is my hometown. Um, and um, yeah, basically typical of consulting internal medicine practice, hospital-based with an outpatient practice and um, worked that way for a couple of years. During that time, I actually, uh, I've got a bit of an entrepreneurial bent, always have. Uh, I started the Medio uh, telemedicine company with a friend of mine here in Victoria. Um, it ended up becoming quite a big thing. Um, eventually, it was bought by Loblaws um, and is still used to this day on, I think, five continents. Um, and um, uh, after that, uh, I went on to become the chief of, uh, of internal medicine uh, for our city. I did that for four years, um, and I liken that to an experience that can only be... It's an experience that you have to experience in order to, to know what it it's all about. It's very similar to trying to, to describe to somebody what it's like when you try to lift a cat up by its tail. Uh, you actually have to experience it in order to really understand what it's all about. Uh, that's the same thing as being a med medical administrator. And the one thing I really learned from that is that no matter how high you are in the hierarchy of a health authority, you will never be able to make change happen. And it was during that time that my eyes were open to lifestyle medicine. Um, you know, I was a top not the top graduating soon, but one of the top ones in, in med school. And, um, you know, thought that I had done a, a very good job learning everything there was to know about internal medicine. And it, it was a shock to me to, to learn that there was this entire field that hadn't even in the slightest been introduced to me throughout not only my, my, my residency in medical school and fellowship, but also all the conferences and, and PGME type stuff that I'd done afterwards. Um, but anyhow, it it, uh, it was something that my wife and I really had started doing on a personal basis. We started feeling uh, a lot better from our own health. Um, and uh, I started thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll just try this with a few patients. And so, you know, in the treadmill department of the hospital, I, I had a cancellation. So I, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this as my test patient. And um, this gentleman had come in with chest pain. We treaded him. There was no chest. There, there was no issue with his heart. But gee, he had an A1C of eleven point seven, right? Um, you know, he had uh, triple digit LFTs. Like this guy was metabolically a disaster. But the the consult, the reason that I was asked to see the patient was was about you know rule out heart disease. Well, we'd done that, but we had time, and so I said to the guy, "Hey, you got a minute? Um, I'll 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 try and figure out a way you can turn around that diabetes without drugs, right?" And so uh, I spent the next half hour doing my very first legitimate lifestyle medicine consult. Um, and three months later, he came back with an A1C of 6.2, no drugs. His LFTs had fallen by 90%. His cholesterol had dramatically improved. And, and this was just with lifestyle changes. And it was one of those moments like from the matrix where he takes the red pill. 
um, you know, it was just like, wow, I, I can't unsee this. Yeah, right? of course. That's incredible. Um, and, and that, that, that led me into lifestyle medicine. It, uh, it, it, uh, from there, it turned out that, um, again, knowing how health authorities work, there was absolutely no administrative support for this type of medicine. Um, and so, uh, it just so happened that one of my colleagues had gone through the same journey at the same time. That's Dr. Saluja. And the two of us, uh, were having lunch one day and, and we kind of sheepishly were explaining this, this newfangled thing that we'd discovered. And we're like, wow, we both are doing the same thing. And uh, we quickly decided, you know what, um, we're not going to be able to practice medicine the old way anymore because we feel like frauds. Right. Um, and so we, uh, we ended up bringing in his cousin, who's a business development expert. And, uh, uh we ended up, uh, I quit my job as the chief of medicine and um, ended up starting what was uh, originally originally revived lifestyle medicine was eventually uh, became aroga lifestyle medicine. And um, uh, we, uh, it's, it's been incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, It's uh, best career move I've ever made, but I must say that it really, if you go all the way back to what made it really possible, it was making that decision on match day to go with general internal medicine, because that shift was a lot easier than it would have been from the cath lab, for example. Yeah, that's super interesting for me personally to hear as I'm starting to go through all my clerkship rotations, as you know, and trying to make these career decisions. And I'm very passionate about lifestyle medicine. So it's very valuable to me to hear your personal experience. And just going through medicine, I feel the same way. Like so often we're just treating the symptoms. We're not getting at the underlying causes. We patch these patients up and send them on their way and they're back the next month. And it's it's not very fulfilling and it's not long-term health changes. So um I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the Aroga Lifestyle Medicine Clinic and just briefly how it compares to a typical internal medicine, like outpatient clinic. Like what is the process for patients when they come to see you compared to somewhere else? So um, first I'll just address the typical internal medicine practice. And uh, I, I don't mean to denigrate anybody here, no, but this is, this, is, this is just reality. Anybody who's done an internal medicine rotation knows it, right? So a typical internal medicine practice uh, consists of a, a medical office assistant, a waiting room, and usually one examining room. Um, and uh, sometimes there's a, if it's a private uh, office, there's, there's sometimes a treadmill lab or, or, or electrodiagnostics in there as well. Um, and so we, um, a patient comes in as referred in for a particular issue or a set of issues. Uh, you do your consultation with the patient, the history of the examination, you give them a prescription and you send them on their way with a follow-up, um, you know, uh, X number of weeks later. Um, that of course was pre-pandemic now, probably 80% of that's done virtually, but it's the same story, right? Um, so that's your typical internal medicine uh, outpatient practice. Of course, inpatients is, uh, is, is, is hospital medicine, not really relevant to the discussion. Um, but lifestyle medicine is very different, right? So uh, this is very much a team-based approach. Um, so uh, patients are referred to Aroga uh, from all different types of specialties uh, and, and obviously primary care. We get referrals from nurse practitioners. We get referrals from virtual services, like for example, Equinox Virtual Clinic. Um, we get uh, referrals from surgeons. We get referrals from other internists from the hospital. Um, you know, we have people who will actually go to their, their practitioner and say, hey, can I get a referral? Um, and, um, so they get referred in and, uh, the nice thing about what we do 
is no matter what specialty is referred the patient to us, um, in internal medicine, you're kind of in this weird area where you're, you know, there's the cardiologist has more knowledge about cardiology, just a bit more, you know, and has procedures that they can do. And the family medicine doc has the, the general broad thing. And so you're in this area, you can easily get squeezed out. And actually that happens in a lot of communities to a general internal medicine. And so you find it a lot more frequently in your smaller communities, you know, your Campbell Rivers, your Grand Prairies, your um, Brandon Manitobas. Um, but uh, we are in a very different position because we've taken ourselves out of this, 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 this chain and we put ourselves parallel to it. So we're able to help everybody. We're, we're, we're a primary care consultant and we're a consultant's consultant. And so basically what they're referred in for is for us to deal with the lifestyle issues that the guidelines say they should be dealing with, but they're not set up to deal with, right? So patient gets referred into Aroga. They're going to first of all, of course, do our, our uh, virtual questionnaires, which help populate our, uh, our, our data, um, helps with uh, clinic efficiency, um, if they're coming in person, uh, when they arrive, uh, they get an electrocardiogram. Uh, this is a screening test, of course, because uh, the metabolic syndrome is such a, a, a solid uh, precursor to heart disease and, of course, hypertension. So uh, they do that. Um, they see our dietitian for 30 minutes. So we get a, a complete dietary history. Some patients wonder whether I'm giving them a, a free dietitian visit, but really what's happening is that dietitian is providing me with a professional level dietary history, which gives me much more confidence to build on. Um, and they do give the patient some advice as well, but the primary purpose is that. So then after that, they see the, uh, the, the general internist um, or the endocrinologist. In some parts of Canada, the endocrinologist fills this role, uh, like Ontario. Um, and so... Then I go ahead and I go through the pillars of lifestyle medicine, right? Like we look at, at nutrition, we look at activity, look at sleep, we look at interconnectedness, we look at addictions. Um, and every patient's a bit different. Um, with the uh, uh, catastrophe that this pandemic has had on our society uh, in terms of well-being, um, I'm finding that social interconnectedness is a pillar that is becoming more dominant than it has been in the past, right? Uh, nutrition obviously still has an issue for a lot of people too. Um, so so we, we identify a bunch of areas where where this person can uh, need, needs to sort of make this first step. And a lot of what we do, instead of being paternalistic, well, here's a prescription for you, is, uh, is, is very much uh, about patient empowerment. And uh, I often feel that my role, starting with that very first visit, is not just as a diagnostician or as a medical expert, but it's as a coach, right? And, um, and it's a coach who's meeting a new player. And, um, and my goal as a coach is to get the most out of that person as I possibly can. And what I'm looking for is not for them to score goals or to get assists. You know, I'm looking for them to get well. And, um, and so that's the way that we frame things. And motivational interviewing is a, is a very important tool of that. You know, you can use medications until the cows come home. If you can't get that person to actually make changes, you can give them great advice, lifestyle advice. And, 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 and if, if you can't motivate them to believe they can do it, they're not even going to try. And so it, that, that's, that's a big piece of that. So during that visit, of course, then I, I, I act as a quarterback. The general internist acts or endocrinologist acts as a quarterback. Okay, what types of, of services do we have at our clinic that this person, other specialties, other, uh, other, other types of programs that do we have that are going to help this person in their unique situation? And then I might bring in my sleep medicine colleagues who look at sleep apnea, look at insomnia, um, you know, look at look at parasomnias and so forth, and help people out with that. I might bring in um, 
the uh, registered dietitian for personalized meal planning. Maybe the issue is the person just is part of the millennial generation or the generation that follows and just has no clue how to cook, right? Like, like this is a real problem, right? I mean, it was a problem in my generation too. I don't have the first idea how to cook. I, I didn't until I about seven years ago, right? Um, and uh, and so there, perhaps there's that aspect, right? Um, we have a clinical counselors in our in our office, and so um, if we've identified that there is a that there is a major underlying issue and my goodness is there ever a lot of uh, of trauma uh in in our society right if we identify that and if they've got a plan that covers clinical counselors or they're able able to cover it themselves british columbia doesn't cover this unfortunately it's not considered as important as entresto is um and so um the uh, uh, they will go ahead and uh, and 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 be referred to the clinical counselor and so forth Right, group sessions. Perhaps that's that's something that's needed. Um, you know, there's evidence for meditation with hypertension. Right, anything where we've got evidence-based medicine that I've got a doctor who's come and said, "Hey, I'd like to do this. I'd like to provide this service." Hey, we've got a whole menu of things. I just am clicking these things off, giving this person this idea. Here's the team we're going to wrap around you to make success happen. And then we follow up every three months. We repeat blood work, and we, if everything goes really well, we watch the diabetes melt away. We watch their blood pressure improve. Right, and the thing is, is that if they don't improve, because people say, "Well, gee, how many people uh, actually improve?" Well, yeah, there are people that don't, but you know, that's not a failing of the patient. That's because I haven't understood their motivations properly yet. I haven't figured out how to light a fire under them, um, and uh, sometimes it takes six months, nine months, a year to figure that out. Sometimes they walk off, say, ah, I don't want to do, do any of this stuff. And, and then they come back a year later and they're ready. Um, it's, it's all change management. And, um, and, and it's, it's a very different way of thinking about medicine, but it, uh, it, it's a lot more fun. And you get the sense that patients are much more, when they get engaged or they ever engaged, it's, it's, it's not like a trip to the dentist, right? Like this is, they're excited to see us and, it, and it's fun. Yeah, that's I can hear the passion in your voice as you're speaking and it seems so much more so much f- more fulfilling and just you're getting to the root cause of the issue and empowering the patient and I think that's honestly a lot of why like medical students and we all want to become physicians in the first place. We want to create everlasting change and we want to make meaningful differences in their lives and it really seems like you've figured out a way to do that and I well, I'm glad to hear that there's slowly going to be more like clinics like yourself. You're expanding across Canada, which is incredible. So if anyone's listening to this, like definitely check out Aroga Lifestyle Medicine. Um, but I would like to shift gears a little bit because um, I know we want to dive into the topic of obesity medicine and bariatric surgery a little bit. Um, so maybe a good place to start out would be just talking about your role with the Island Health Bariatric Clinic. Um, can you just explain your role here and how you fit this in with your passion for lifestyle medicine and preventative medicine and everything you talked about previously? Yeah, so um, uh, I'm uh, one of the well, the only job that I've retained with uh, the health authority is uh, is I'm the medical director at the Island Health Bariatrics Clinic. Uh, so it's the bariatric surgery peri op, pre op, post op uh, clinic. Um, and uh, in that role, uh, we uh, are essentially conditioning patients. Uh, uh, well, first of all, determining if they're safe for and uh, preparing them for, and then dealing with all of the aftercare from from bariatric surgery. Um, in that role, it's uh, our goal, and it's, it's funny because the surgeons have exactly the same point of view on this. Our goal is to actually prevent the surgery from being needed in the first place. And, um, and you know, often with bariatrics, uh, it, for a variety of reasons, that often the patient's own um, motivations going into it are such that, um, that, that they 
they aren't even in some cases open to the idea of, uh, of, okay, you know, maybe we can do it this way. Often it's because they've got this internalized fat bias, which in some cases is really hard to pull out, right? Really hard to, it's, it's where they believe that they can't succeed. Right. And so they need the surgery and they've got this internalized to the point where, you know, that this is just, it's a, it's a one track. I've got to do this. Fair enough. Right. The, the thing is, is bariatric surgery, even though it is very invasive um, and uh, obviously re- results in a permanent change to the anatomy, it has the potential to um, give the person essentially that, that rocket fuel boost that they need. It's not curative in most people for obesity. But for most people, it does have a massive impact on diabetes. It does cause substantial weight loss. And the thing is, is that in the case of a, of a surgery like the sleeve gastrectomy or the gastric bypass surgery, it, it, it actually causes a bit of a metabolic reset. So for some people, um, a big part of the reason that they can't lose weight no matter what they try to do uh, is because their body has locked in uh, a set point where their weight is, is set Body says it's going to be 290 pounds, and that's just how it's going to be. Well, it turns out that that weight is very hormonal, right? And it's hormones that you may have never heard of before. Um, ghrelin, GLP-1, neuropeptide YY. Um, you know, most people have heard of cholecystokinin, but you know, there, there's a long list of these peptide hormones that are made by the gut, right, from stomach all the way to the to the uh, to the lower part of the ileum, and then of course the gut microbiome produces all sorts of interesting substances as well. Bariatric surgery disrupts this in a way that's that's comparable to um, successful, um, broad and permanent lifestyle change. Um, and uh, as a result, um, it changes that set point. As long as you stay with the lifestyle changes, well, the the body will be set to whatever the new the, the new normal is. With bariatric surgery, what you've done is you've removed the cells that are producing lots of, uh, for example, ghrelin. Uh, you've made it so that mechanical digestion is less effective. So there's more particles that make their way down to the uh, ileum and, and secrete more, cause the secretion of more um, GLP-1. So it, in a way, it's kind of kind of boosting people. But the thing is, is a lot of people, in order to get that, again, that that self-efficacy, that, that belief that they can succeed, they need that 60 pounds of weight loss and it unlocks everything, right? So um, my approach after successful bariatric surgery is really where the, the aroga part comes in. Um, yes, we try our best in the pre-op phase. And yes, maybe one out of 10 patients ends up succeeding and they say, Hey, you know what? I don't need surgery. I don't want surgery. Things are going great. Right. We just shift them over to the office practice to follow up on them. But for the other ones, what, what we do is, um, is post-surgery, um, as they get further away from the surgery itself, the effect of that surgery starts dropping off. And that's where those lifestyle changes become very, very important. So, uh, if you don't make the changes, the natural history of, uh, of obesity and bariatric surgery is a U-shaped curve over a five-year period, right? If you do make the changes, it ends up being an L-shaped curve. Um, and even better is where it ends up being a, a, a like a, the bottom of the ocean where you've got the steep drop-off and then a, a gradual ongoing decline, right? And um, the only other uh, bariatrics doc who really does things this way that I'm that I'm aware of, um, other than than Jazz Deep and myself, and actually uh, there's a couple of colleagues that are that are coming online very soon in bariatric programs elsewhere in Canada, uh, and Heidi Dutton, for example, out in Ottawa. Um, 
uh, we, uh, the, the, the guy that I think uh, was kind of an inspiration to a lot of people was uh, Garth Davis. If you're familiar with Garth Davis. Yes, he's incredible. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and the nice thing is, is that uh, although Garth is doing the, the surgical side of things, um, the nice thing for us is we, we actually have that long-term follow-up. And so um, we can use the surgery as a springboard. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's certainly not necessary for a lot of people, but for some it is. And for those that it is, um, you know, we, we, it doesn't obviate, uh, the need for lifestyle change and, and permanent behavior change, all of the, the motivational interviewing and self-efficacy that surrounds that. So that's how that fits in. And for my, my, my obesity patients, it allows me to also, uh, offer them the full spectrum of, uh, of, of modern bariatric medicine care, right? We do lifestyle medicine hardcore, right? But it doesn't mean I'm going to deny patients medication, right? If they come and, and, and they've, they really truly have done everything and they say, okay, well, maybe I'm going to, what about Ozempic, right? What about these medicines, right? Well, some people have deficiencies of certain hormones, right? And it's, it's remarkable. You get the odd person who nothing really has worked. And then you throw a GLP-1 agonist at them. You're like, well, you just must have been GLP-1 deficient. And they lose a whole bunch of weight and their diabetes gets better. And then you've got that group where, where there's the surgery. And those are the three big buckets of treatment. But my, my belief is, is, that, uh, is that as with most types of chronic disease, the lifestyle aspect is, is crucially important. Yeah, I, I love hearing you talk about that because I think it's a misconception that the bariatric surgery is the end point. And once you get the surgery, the the hard work's done. And some people even think it's like the easy way out, which it completely is not. Like the work, it's just the beginning of the work. And it's it's fascinating to hear you talk about that. Um, maybe we can work backwards, I guess, um, from the pillars of obesity medicine, as you talked about, from the surgery to some of the medications to just the lifestyle changes. And since we were just talking about the surgery, can you just briefly describe what is actually done in like a Ruin Y gastric bypass surgery? Sure. What what you do, and then how this helps with the weight loss, and maybe just yeah, just quick overview for people that haven't heard of it before. Sure. So I mean, there's there's multiple different types of bariatric surgery uh, that are out there. They, the the two most commonly done ones in Canada at this point are the uh, gastric sleeve or the uh, laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy um, and the RU, which is also known as the RU-NY gastric bypass or the gastric bypass. Um, both of these surgeries uh, are done typically in a laparoscopic manner um, and they have the same inclusion criteria. Uh, exclusion criteria are a little bit different from one to the other. Uh, the bypass is a bit better for poorly controlled diabetics um, and uh, is much better for those that have acid reflux because acid reflux is a side effect potentially of the uh, sleeve, whereas it's actually treated or cured by uh, a successful uh, gastric bypass. So what happens, I'll start with the sleeve gastrectomy. What happens with the sleeve gastrectomy is, uh, is the surgeon goes in um, and will make an incision uh, along the greater curvature of the stomach and uh, ultimately ends up uh, doing an anastomosis between the two sides, essentially taking the stomach that looks like a giant kidney bean and turning it into something that looks a lot more like a banana. Um, you end up losing about 90% of the uh, greater curvature of the stomach tissue. You don't lose any of the lesser curvature um, and uh, it doesn't affect either sphincter. Um, and uh, then that's, uh, that's, that's stapled. So it grow, it's stapled over, it grows over itself um, and uh, it seals up. Um, the, uh, the actual path that your food takes does not change at all. Um, it still goes down the same route that it's been going down since you were a newborn baby, um, without any, any alteration. The big advantage of course, as I mentioned earlier, 
is that uh, is that uh, the greater curvature happens to be a very hormonally active place, um, and uh, the removal of those cells makes a very big difference um, in your body's set point. Also, of course, the the mechanical digestion strength is changed. Um, so that's your that's your sleeve. Um, in the long haul, sleeves have much less in the way of nutritional abnormalities, issues with uh, micronutrient uh, deficiencies, and so forth. So I find them to be a much easier surgery. You also don't have to worry about protein, right? Because um, uh, bariatric surgery uh, programs typically are obsessed with protein, right? Well, it turns out that yes, you do need a, a good amount of protein post-op, but that's that's true of any major surgery for healing purposes, right? You don't want to be protein deficient. That doesn't mean that you need to follow a ketogenic diet, right? Uh, the pro-inflammatory uh, uh, fat in there is clearly not beneficial uh, for situations like this. Um, but uh, but in the long haul, they eat the same diet as you or I, right? In terms of uh, they, they they don't need to be sixty grams or ninety grams of protein. You, you don't need to do that. Now that contrasts with the gastric bypass. So in a gastric bypass, the surgeon makes um, a series of incisions that end up resulting in a uh, removal of a, a substantial portion of the uh, of the greater curvature of the stomach. Um, and then you sever the bottom part of the stomach, the distal portion from the uh, from from the pylorus, um, and you sew it onto a, another incision that you make in the jejunum. And then you attach the two of them up. And so you end up with a Y. You have what's left of the duodenum uh, that's hooked up to the, uh, to, to the uh, pancreatic duct, um, common bile duct. Um, and, uh, and then further down, you've got where the, uh, where the stomach has now been sewn onto the, uh, onto the jejunum. And so as you might imagine, nutrients that are primarily absorbed in the duodenum uh, end up becoming an issue. Um, as well as as uh, as as nutrients that require, for example, intrinsic factor, which is uh, which is made in, in particularly the pyloric portion of the stomach, because you just don't have that anymore. It's been removed, right? It's been it's been disconnected, and so what ends up happening with with these folks is a combination of the hormonal aspect uh, that you get with uh, with the sleeve, and a malnutrition aspect, right? Here's the interesting thing, though: neither of these surgeries primary effect is due to the stomach being smaller. Everybody thinks that's the reason, right? Yeah, completely. But but really, these are hormone surgeries. They're metabolic surgeries. And, uh, you know, we know this because you can do, and they do do, um, these gastric um, um, cuff uh, type surgery. So, so in, in this, or banding surgery. So in that situation, they put a cuff around the stomach that can be inflated or deflated. Well, that can shrink the size of the stomach just as much as a gastric sleeve can. But the interesting thing is, is the weight loss from that is half what you get from a sleeve. Well, why is there a difference, right? They've also done things like, for example, give people inflatable balloons that then take up space in the stomach. Again, they, they, yes, they cause weight loss, but it's not, it's not anywhere near what you get with these metabolic procedures where you actually alter the hormones. The other thing that you get with gastric uh, bypass, aside from nutrient deficiencies, is uh, if you have food that, uh, that, that flows, or as I like to call it, food-like items that, uh, that flow quickly from the stomach down into the, uh, into the jejunum, um, like, for example, processed food-like items, bread, sugar, um, you know, cookies, jube jubes, you name it, right? Uh, you know, double doubles. Um, you get dumping syndrome because uh, what ends up happening is you get a huge amount of uh, of high osmolarity uh, fluid entering into the jejunum, and then that sucks lots of water out, makes a person dizzy, causes tachycardia. Uh, it 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 
has a whole bunch of very unpleasant symptoms. Um, but uh, that's really the, the difference between the two. Both situations, you need to take vitamins long-term, um, but with the gastric bypass, it is mission critical. With the gastric sleeve, if you are negligent, your, your odds of being harmed are a lot lower. But I've seen people with Tabes dorsalis from B12 deficiency with gastric bypass because they've stopped taking their B12 for a couple of years. So it, it, it does happen. Okay. So there are significant risks, but huge benefits as well. And it's about so much more than just like the satiety. It's about hormones is the big takeaways here. Yeah. Super fascinating. Um, can you, cause you do mention like there's significant amount of weight loss initially, how much can patients expect to lose after one of these surgeries? And also what are the criteria for getting one of these surgeries in the first place? What, like, what are the indications for them? Sure. So so the current indications are, are, I mean, like many things in medicine, they're in flux, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's two large buckets of uh, of, of inclusion criteria, um, and I'm just going to quote the ones that we use here in British Columbia. Uh, there are some differences uh, around North America. So, um, and and this is this is we have a unified uh, system. There's a program in Vancouver and our program in Victoria, and that's it. And so we 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 keep um, uh, consistency between the two. Um, so the first uh, group, um, the big indication is uh, class three obesity. So a BMI greater than 40. Um, and, uh, that, uh, that does not require any other, um, any other, uh, uh, comorbidity, uh, does require that a person has made, uh, you know, attempts, lifestyle attempts, uh, um, uh, to, uh, to deal with the obesity. So, you know, if you were on prednisone and you ended up gaining a hundred pounds, um, and you've had that hundred pounds only for three months or six months, you're not going to, you're not going to be offered bariatric surgery, right? Um, you know, same thing for like Zytus or, or one of these other obesogenic uh, drugs, of which there are many. Um, but if you've uh, if you've if you've done that, if you and we make sure you've done that too, right? Because if you haven't been introduced to lifestyle change, we make sure that happens, right? Um, so uh, so. Uh, BMI greater than 40, class three obesity, that's that's uh, one inclusion criteria. Uh, and then the second inclusion criteria is class two obesity with a metabolic derangement secondary to obesity that um, uh, using the Edmonton obesity scoring system, um, which was developed by Arya Sharma in Edmonton, actually, at your, your uh, school, um, it, uh, if you're, if you're a class two there, which means you're a diabetic, even if it's mild, early diabetes, if you got hypertension, uh, sleep apnea, any, any of these, these, these consequences, um, then, then we'll consider you in that, that group, um, uh, class one obesity. So BMI of under 35 is, uh, is considered, an, uh, ineligible for surgery in British Columbia. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then how much weight can patients expect to lose after the surgery? Yeah. Like, is I think I've heard like 20% or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we always are hesitant to quote people hard and I fast. Them because <laughs> they, always, they, they always are going to hold us by that. Uh, I almost feel like they go and pin the number to their fridge or something. Uh, but um, in reality, uh, you know, 20% is, uh, is, is, is an underestimate for most patients. Um, you know, if we're talking about their, uh, their total body weight and then loss of that rather than excess body weight loss. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 20 to 30% is, is, uh, something that would be pretty typical. I have had the odd patient who goes through surgery and, uh, and ends up with no weight loss at all. And one of those guys was actually one of those patients that ended up being, I, and I, I, I mean, if I had more medical students, I get these written up for journals, but a patient that, uh, that, that I really do believe was, uh, 
was uh, a GLP deficient or somehow wasn't making GLP one um, because uh, ultimately we put that guy on uh, on on Ozempic and he he lost way more weight than you should lose on Ozempic like uh, like it was it was ridiculous it lost like I think it was almost a hundred pounds he lost and nobody does that right and sorry um, is Ozempic one of the GLP one agonists that's right, or, that's right. It's yeah, one okay. yeah semaglutide um, and um, and and so you don't normally see that right but here's a guy who'd had surgery had made lifestyle changes still didn't lose weight well you know, obesity is multifactorial, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an example of somebody who has zero uh, weight loss six months post-op, right? And then on the other side of the scale, you get patients and you get these much more frequently than you get the zero. Like the zero might be one out of 200, right? Um, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the people that have actually lost so much weight that their BMI is now under 25. And that is a thing. Uh, it absolutely is a thing. Every day that I'm at that clinic, there is somebody who we see that's lost more than a hundred pounds, somebody who's, who's, who's down 120, 130, 140. But you know what? Again, the success there depends on lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You have a surgery. If you don't make the lifestyle changes, you're not going to get that type of success, but you combine a whole food, ideally primarily plant-based, but especially a whole food diet with bariatric surgery, it's the only way you're going to get the best possible results and sustainable results. And so, yeah, we see that type of, that type of thing. And then of course, patients, uh, you know, they've got excess skin, right? Um, and uh, in our on our in our health authority, we've got a, a palette of excellent plastic surgeons um, who uh, offer um, some surgeries that are covered by our public health care system and some that aren't in order to remove the excess skin. And so, uh, for patients, it can be a, a, an absolutely dramatic, uh, life altering um, event. And the thing that I find that's really cool about successful bariatric surgery, and again, why I think it has. I know there's controversy in the lifestyle medicine world. Oh, it's very, very invasive. It's not really necessary. Well, I don't know about that. I think that there are people who need it. You know, um, maybe not most people, but there definitely are people. Um, the, um, the, the, the thing that's great about it is that person, all of a sudden, number one, that, that old narrative about themselves like the, almost like the victim type of narrative where, where I can't do it. The world's done this to me. I, I feel horrible. I deserve it. Like that's the worst of all. I, you see that all the time. I deserve this. All of a sudden it, it's it, the narrative shattered is there's a before and an after. And now this person is like, no, I'm going to go get them. Right. And how many of these people I see at the Victoria marathon, um, a couple of years later, uh, I, I don't do full marathons, half marathon. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's crazy. And they all want to come up and say hi and what have you. And it's just, it, it almost brings a tear to the eye when you see people doing that, but, um, they would have never gotten to the point where they number one had that self-efficacy, the belief in themselves. And number two, you know, the, the effect, mechanical effect um, of, of that weight loss in allowing them to actually start using physical activity, right? Uh, also to start caring for themselves too, uh, in, in, a, in a really, really meaningful way. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it acts as a catalyst, um, you know, and it's not the only catalyst, right? I mean, I mean, successful lifestyle changes. You know, I told you about this this case, uh, these cases at bariatrics. Well, I can I can go on and on and on and on about ones that are pure lifestyle, right? I mean, I had one lady come in BMI of over sixty. Guidelines say it's impossible. You can't do that through lifestyle. The Canadian guidelines, the ones that just came out, and I think are kind of yeah. I'm not really not really a fan of those guidelines. Um, 
the um, you know they say it's not possible. Oh, you know you you, it, you know lifestyle change. It's 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 you know if your BMI is above forty, it's just not going to go anywhere. Well, gee, you know I, I I wouldn't really have a job if that was the case. Um, so uh, this this lady um, uh, she had a tragic story. Um, uh, she she'd had cortical blindness due to an accident. She was young. She actually was a professional model prior to that. Uh, really a, a, a horrible horrible turn of events. Uh, was abandoned by her significant other after this. Uh, it was it was sad. She actually had approached our maid experts prior to approaching us. Oh, um, yeah, for, yeah. For those that don't know, that's medical assistance in dying or death. Yeah, and and they had uh, they had they had basically told her that might be might be a little bit early to make that type of a decision. Um, and uh, so, ultimately, through one way or another, she found out about us. Uh, she was. 30 years old, um, BMI now at 61. And again, this was a professional model, like a Los Angeles professional model. Um, and, um, you know, she comes in and is basically is like a, you know, like this is, this is, uh, this is my last kick at the cat, right? Oh boy. You know, okay, Jesse, the pressure's on here. Um, so, um, so, but, but, she had a friend who, a very good friend who is, who is there to cook with her and who came with her to those appointments um, and, um, she, uh, she really, really took in what we were saying and, uh, and she made her friend and her, uh, they made the change the, together. They made the changes together. Friend of course, wasn't visually impaired. Um, and, uh, and they cooked together. They did the prep work. They went, they, they, they challenged each other's on walks and so forth. Well, gee, you know, I, I seen her for follow-up. Well, the diabetes is gone. The dyslipidemia is gone. The hypertension is gone. She's off five drugs. Um, and guess what? Her BMI is at 32, right? Wow. You know, like, like this is real. And, yeah. um, you know, again, you know, results may vary as the, uh, I think the stock market people say it, it, and it's very true, but if you don't try it, then you never know if you're going to have that person who actually can do that without surgery. And, um, and, and we see it, right. We see it, you know, jazz deep. He, he holds our clinic record right now is I don't know if Ontario has got someone who's done better than him, but BC, he holds the clinic record for insulin. Right. So, uh, we, we, we hate insulin. Um, we, we, we really dislike insulin. Um, and so I, I say that if I was a Marvel superhero, insulin would be my enemy. Um, so, um, basically, uh, we do our best to get uh, number one, our goal with diabetes is remission. It, it, it is, that's the goal we have with every type two diabetic that we have, even type 1.5 diabetics, which are both insulin de deficient and insulin resistant. Um, if they make insulin and we test everybody for fasting insulin, because you discover all sorts of interest. Nobody does that test, right? Somebody, somebody approached us and well, why do you do this test? No one does this test. Well, yeah, we do this test because it's super useful, right? Um, you know, I need to know if I'm dealing with a type 1.5 or a type two, right? Uh, totally different approach. But at the end of the day, if you can get their insulin resistance down enough, you can get them off of insulin and it happens fast. So Jazz has gotten somebody off 220 units of insulin per day uh, over a six week period. That's, that's the clinic record. No, nobody's beaten that. My, my best is 180. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> and I mean, I mean yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, right? And almost everybody comes in and they, 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 they think you're joshing them when you say that your diabetes can be put in remission. Ah, oh, no, that's impossible. No, it's not impossible. That's yeah, why you the job so awesome. Yeah, I know. I'm just like, I'm getting excited hearing about it, honestly. And I think like, this is why like I wanted to go into medicine is to make these 
empowering these lifestyle changes and like truly change people's lives. And you shared some like incredible stories. And I think we need to touch on like what exactly are the diet recommendations and the lifestyle changes, like, like in a nutshell, I'm, of course, we don't have time to get into it all, but like, what do you tell these patients? What are the changes they need to make in order to see the success that you're talking about? Yeah. So it, it, you know what? The, it, each patient's a bit different. Each medical condition is a bit different, right? Um, and so this is not a straitjacket approach. This is like anything else in medicine. You tailor it to the patient's needs. And um, in, in all frankness, almost everybody that comes in has a few different areas that they need to work on. So you pick the one that's going to be the easiest win first, right? Again, it's, it's coaching 101. You want to make the person believe in themselves, so how do you do that? You give them a win. You find an easy win or the easiest win that you can get for them. And then you build self-efficacy that way. Um, so the, uh, the, we'll just go through, through the, the common stuff. So first of all, nutrition. Um, you know, all the, all the pillars are important, but I, I sometimes think that if this was a tent, the center pole would be nutrition. Um, not true of everybody, but most people. Uh, so unfortunately, even though our calorie intake is largely the same as it was in the late 1960s, we've ended up with a situation where a majority of Canadians are either obese or about to become obese. Um, it's no different in the United States or Mexico or England. Um, and everybody is fixated on this calorie thing. The first thing I tell patients, no matter who it is that come in, is just throw the concept of calorie in the garbage. Anytime you think about that, just, just, just put it into a ball and throw it away. And why do you do that? Because it's bunk. It's meaningless. Calories are meaningless. And why do we know they're meaningless? Because we've been pursuing low-calorie approaches and calorie-based dieting for 45 years, and every year our society is sicker than the last, right? So what is the problem in, in diet? Well, in the nutritional world, it all comes down to gut hormones. It comes down to the incretins, right? It, it also comes down to the uh, adipocyte-based hormones, so it's the adipokines. Um, and uh, basically, what we eat... And of course, the microbiome, which plays into this too. What we eat dramatically changes what output we get. And that output is how our body, in most cases, determines what our weight ought to be. All right. So then let's 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 dial that one back a little bit. So I say to people, I think about the digestive system. And that's the, the hormone system, right from the stomach all the way down to the bottom, and the microbiome as a symphony orchestra. Now you can give the symphony orchestra to play all sorts of different music. They can play Metallica. They can play Bach, right? The sheet music that conduct the, and the conductor is the food. And so the type of food matters tremendously. It's not about calories. It's about, I don't like saying it, but the type of calorie, right? Like it's not about carbs. It's about the type of food. Right? It's not about protein. It's about the type of protein. It's, it's not about fat. It's about the type, right? Because our body, our hormonal system, our orchestra plays different music depending on what sheet music that it gets. So what is the sheet music that the human body will play the most beautiful music with? Well, that is a whole food approach, right? So what is a whole food approach? A whole food approach is food items that have not been milled or altered prior to digestion. 
All right. So what is that? Well, something that grows outdoors, something that a caveman could have eaten 50, 60,000 years ago. That is a whole food. As soon as you go and mill something and you make it too easy to digest. And, and that, that's why even, you know, multi-grain whole wheat bread, 100% whole wheat organic bread is a highly processed food. That's why organic orange juice or apple juice that you might have squeezed yourself. That's why it's a processed food, right? That's why honey is a processed food. Yes, you can find it in the environment, but where did it come from? It came from 10,000 flowers, right? When you concentrate items so that they're too easy to digest, what ends up happening is you get different music played by your digestive system. And it, it gives a very, very different output, right? Some studies suggest that up to 80% of what we eat in Canada and the United States is processed food now by that definition. So what do we want to do? We want to get people away from processed food, or as I call it, processed food-like items, and into real food. That's what we want people to do. We want people to eat like people ate for most of human history. All right. Now there's nuances in there, right? So within that, there's some diseases where you need to be whole food and plant-based in order to get the results that you want, right? Some excellent examples of that would include dyslipidemia, where there's the portfolio approach. Uh, Dr. Jenkins out in Toronto pioneered, right? There's the Ornish-Esselstein diet, which has been shown to shrink coronary plaques, which is something no drug's ever been shown to do, right? Again, whole food, plant-based, right? The evidence is for that, right, in those situations. With fatty liver disease, a whole food approach, as long as you're not too heavy on, on uh, particularly animal fats, um, it can, be, it can be put into remission that way, right? Diabetes, same thing, right? So there are these nuances within the nutritional pillar, but the nutritional pillar is, is really important. The problem with it when we're treating is that processed foods formulated to be addictive. And so often this is not just an educational talk, it ends up turning into an addictions management situation. And that's its whole own thing I could do an hour on. Um, but, but again, it's just like quitting smoking. We go through the whole cycle, pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, preparation, all, the, the, the whole spectrum of that. So that's, that's the nutritional side. And, uh, and so we work on that. Now, what about activity? There's solid evidence around activity, but activity, I, I don't like using exercise because it's, it's, it's got some connotation. Puts it in a, in a yeah, box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, it makes it, it makes me think about a hamster on a wheel, which is not what I want people to think about, right? Um, what, what I want people to be thinking about is, is just getting out, right? Human beings are not meant to be cooped up inside of a building, right? We're, not, we're especially not to be cooped up and alone, right? Like that's why solitary confinement is considered to be cruel and unusual punishment, right? And, and I mean, there's other animals like that too. Put a dog in solitary confinement, he'll go crazy, um, you know? Cat, on the other hand, well, gee, you know, a cat would be perfectly happy in solitary confinement, right? So uh, basically, the, um, the, the, the main reason that I want people uh, to be uh, doing physical activity, getting out, um, is for their mental health. So the reason that there's a benefit to that in my line of work, yes, if you're an exercise fiend, you, can, you, can, you will lose weight, you'll tone your muscle, that's fantastic stuff, right? But for the average person who's starting from the ground up, the thing that I want them to do is get out because it's good for their mental health, right? It's going to provide them with that ability to succeed in quitting sugar, which is as hard to quit as cocaine, right? Um, it, it's going to provide them with that, right? Um, I always tell them again, you're not going for that walk to burn calories, right? 
But when you go for that walk, you're much less likely, this is what I'm thinking, you're much less likely to go ahead and have the double-double, right? So um, so that's the idea behind physical activity is it helps with the mental health, it helps with cravings, it helps control these things. Anybody who goes for runs knows that after a good, successful run, you're not likely to go and have a massive meal. In fact, you're more likely, and there's evidence that backs this, to have a smaller meal. So again, it's not that you're burning calories. It's the stupidest concept of all time. We're not lawnmowers, right? Um, you know, it has to do with our hormone system, right? So there's that. Then sleep, right? Sleep is neglected by us doctors all the time because we're probably the worst of the worst when it comes to the sleep pillar. In fact, when I see doctors, that's the I zero in on that right away, right? Um, I, I, I'm sure the chief of staffs hate me all around BC because I've counseled many doctors to quick call because I think the call is one of the least healthy things a human being can, can do. And we, we know that shift work is, is terrible on multiple levels, right? But it's even worse when you're throwing it in every four days and you're not having a recovery day after that. And it's just, it's brutal, right? It's terrible. So, and, th and that assumes it's one and four. I know people have done one and two. It's, it, it's so terrible. funny because it's like, I'm talking to you today, I'm post-call and I'm on one and four right now on Gen Surge. So. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal. It's grossly, it, it, we're the only profession out there that does this, right? And yet, you know, it, it's proven in really well-conducted research to be harmful. And what do we do? We subject ourselves to it, of course. I mean, it's, 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 it defies logic, right? So anyhow, sleep matters a lot. It's, and it's not just about getting enough sleep. It also is about the right type of sleep, right? So sleep apnea, um, you know, once you get a BMI up above 35, which a big chunk of Canadians now are at, um, you know, you're talking about above a 50-50 chance of having sleep apnea, right? And sleep apnea has so many knock-on effects. Well, the interesting thing about sleep apnea is if you treat it, sometimes you'll cause weight loss just by treating the sleep apnea. Why is that? Say, Hormones? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so here again, what, what happens at nighttime when, when, when you have an apnea episode? Well, you're sleeping, but your body is saying you're being strangled to death. And so cortisol, glucagon, adrenaline, and that's just the start, right? All that goes, goes all haywire. And so you fix that problem, depending on how that plugs in, it can cause weight loss, Right. And also it's going to help your hypertension, maybe get you off that drug that you're taking, right? And, you know, if you're older, it might prevent you from getting AFib, which is a terrible thing. So uh, we, 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 we look at the sleep aspect. Um, you know, the other thing is insomnia. Here's another fun piece for doctors out there. I don't know if they're the target of your blog or not, but uh, um, the, uh, so white LED light is a nightmare, literally. Um, so, our eye, I mean, I could go into this. I'm not going to because I know I, I can run off on this tangent for a long time. But bottom yeah. line is, is that exposure to a, a very specific wavelength of light that our LED lights produce and that our fluorescent lights produce in less uh, volume makes our brain's um, circadian central circadian rhythm center think that it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it takes about two hours after you get out of that environment for your brain to start going into the, okay, the sun has set, it's time to go to sleep mode. All right. And that, that this is, this is simple biochemistry, right? And, and, and it's read the research on it. It's absolutely fascinating. Like it's been worked out very thoroughly. This is why everybody has trouble falling asleep these days, right? What are you doing? You're looking at your phone, you're looking at your computer right before you go to bed. You're not making any melatonin when you're doing that because your brain thinks it's the middle of the day. So why aren't you sleeping? 
there you go, right? So we, we look at that, uh, you know, a good sleep makes a world difference and it also increases your ability to resist sugar, right? Okay, then you look at the next pillar and, and, and uh, that's addictions, right? There's so much of that out there right now. I mean, the amount of, of and, and you name it, right? Um, nicotine, alcohol, uh, drugs, uh, especially drugs, drugs like cocaine. Um, this, this is, this is the, the pandemic is, I, I mean, I don't know what the real stats are. I think it's doubled. I really do. It's, 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 it's astonishing how many people relapsed. Right. And so you got to get at those addictions. Interestingly, sometimes I don't prioritize the addiction over the other things, because if you throw too much at a person, um, you know, you may not be able to get the, the other behavior changes out of the way first, right? Um, but uh, clearly, that's something that needs to be addressed as well. And we all know about the, uh, the 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 change cycle when it comes to addictions. We 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 have to look at that. Um, and then there's interconnectedness. People don't do well unless you're one of these rare, unusual uh, Ted Kaczynski sorts that live in a cabin in the woods and don't like human beings. Um, you need human connection. Right. And figuring out how to get a person human connection is really important. Right. Uh, especially seniors that are stuck in these Orwellian, uh, you know, assisted living and nursing facilities, you know, who are crying about how, you know, their, their kid doesn't visit them more than once a year. And, uh, you know, they don't like anybody there and blah, 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 blah. Well, how do we get that person engaged in life again? Right. Because if you're disengaged with, with society and with the world, it's, it's, it's not a good place. Right. Um, and the same thing goes for, for people just out there, like right now, everybody working from home. I had a patient yesterday who's just, you know, it's been devastated by this. Right. And, and what's ended up happening? Well, her only thing that she's finding pleasurable in life is processed food like items. You know, she's gained 60 pounds as a result of that since the pandemic started. Right. But her problem is, is that her job is now all virtual. And so she doesn't have that connection with her workers or coworkers. She doesn't have that reason to get out and do things and so forth. And so then we have to figure out how are we going to reconnect them? Is it going to be volunteer work that's part of the package? Is it going to be, um, uh, you know, making a career change? Again, I'm sure there's HR people that, 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 that don't like me either. Um, but we have to work with them to identify how we might be able to make that difference. Right. And then, and then love is, is obviously important. We all need it. Um, and, uh, you know, whether we're talking about platonic or romantic love, having that, that peace in your life is very important. Um, and, uh, helping people on that relationship basis is, uh, is important as well as where counselors come in. I, I, uh, I think that, um, I think that, that some of the, my, my, my more enjoyable um, moments that I've had with patients have come when, uh, you know, I had one father who reconciled with his son after 20 years of being estranged. And well, the core thing, the reason that this guy was so unhealthy was because he, life was not worth living anymore because the son hadn't talked to him in two decades, right? And we actually coached him to having a to meeting with his son. They resolved their differences. And now this guy was ready to live again. Right. So this is why these pillars are so important. Yeah, there's so so many aspects to it. And I, I could honestly listen to you talk about this forever. And I'd love to have you back on sometime, but I, I know I need to be respectful of your time. Yeah, time, time, time's, yeah time's I know set. that like time's flew by. Okay. But um, just as we close out, what is one thing that you'd like people listening to take away from this conversation? Just anything at all. Well, I think that 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 if the audience is is the general public, and if it's doctors, yeah, general public, some healthcare professionals as well. It's a mix. Perfect. So for for healthcare uh, professionals, it is very 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 important to recognize that lifestyle is absolutely 
critical uh, to effectively treating uh, medical conditions, right? And, uh, you know, don't fall into that trap of thinking, well, you know, this is a bunch of crap. It's not. And, and it's, it's the thing that can actually do what we really want to do, which is improve a person's life, right? And to the people that, uh, that, that are listening that are not healthcare practitioners um, who have chronic diseases or maybe have loved ones that have chronic diseases, know this, it is possible to make these things go into remission. It is possible. You have that power in you. It's just about awakening it. That's amazing. We'll end on that. If anyone listening, if they want to reach out, connect with you, check out Aroga, um, where would you direct them to? Uh, so our website, aroga.com is a good place to start. And there's a bunch of different links in there as well. Perfect. I will link to all that in the show notes below. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, anytime. You have yourself a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.